of Communism and Oppenheimer. Why it's a mistake to misread the film as being sympathetic to communism. This is a supplement to the piece I posted yesterday that needs clarification. It is all too easy to see both Barbie and Oppenheimer as two sides of the same coin. Barbie is the ultimate woke movie, and Oppenheimer as a movie that attempts to vindicate or sympathize with communism. But that would be a mistake. Barbie reflects our society now, a society not unlike what the communist hunters most feared, ideological capture of our major institutions, our culture, our schools, and our government. I enjoyed Barbie because it was fun to laugh at a silly movie, but it is important to put it in context of what we're living through now, as Critical Drinker explains. Now, before I dive into this review properly, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the hard work and genius PR campaign of the Warner Brothers marketing department. You guys really pulled off a miracle with this one, successfully duping all of us, including me, into believing that Barbie was going to be just another colourful, light-hearted, easy-going family comedy with some cheeky self-aware humour, ironic meta-gags, and probably capped off with a blandly inoffensive female empowerment message about girls learning the value of their own potential. What none of us expected was 114 minutes of spiteful, bitter, mean-spirited, borderline unhinged hatred of men and everything even vaguely associated with them. Barbie is like the deformed, mutated rage child of Captain Marvel, Ghostbusters 2016, and She-Hulk. So, I'm an expert at controlling my anger because I do it- I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. It is pure brain cancer in movie form, and I was genuinely shocked by the sheer, undisguised contempt this film has towards 50% of the human population. Watching this film was one of the most miserable, demoralizing, unpleasant experiences I've ever had as a movie critic, and genuinely made me question where our society is heading. But the review must be done, and you know what Jack Burton always says at a time like this? Old Jack always says, what the hell? The movie begins with a rip-off. Homage to 2001 A Space Odyssey, where little girls discover Barbie for the first time and gleefully cast off their boring and oppressive baby dolls in an orgy of violence and destruction. And if the visual metaphor of little girls happily destroying the embodiment of motherhood to focus their lives instead on a shallow and materialistic piece of consumerist trash is lost on you, then I don't know what to say man, but you're probably the target audience for this movie. Anyway, the film explains that all the Barbie and Ken dolls live together in Barbie land, a kind of magical counterpart to the real world, which is portrayed as a peaceful feminist utopia where all the important jobs are done by the Barbies, and the Kens just kind of exist. They've got no inherent value, they contribute nothing, they have no power or say in how their society is run, and they're basically looked down on as a bit silly and irrelevant by the Barbies. Oh my goodness, what could the writers possibly be trying to tell us about their views on men? Anyway, this is where we meet stereotypical Barbie, who's busy living her best life, partying with her friends and treating her boyfriend stereotypical Ken like absolute dog shit. Who's the hero of this thing again? Anyway, things suddenly change when Barbie starts experiencing emotional changes and physical flaws like flat feet and cellulites. See, because Barbie world is a reflection of the real world, the Barbie's appearances change depending on how their real life owner plays with them. Wait, what? Do you have any idea how many Barbie dolls must get broken, or thrown in trash compactors, or set on fire, or eaten by family pets every single day? <coughs> then the place would look like the Omaha Beach.
Barbie is lighthearted and not intended as propaganda, but it makes assumptions about our shared reality that really only has meaning for those on the left who go along with it. Men are bad, women are good, but gender is not a binary, etc. Oppenheimer is about the America before the war and the America after the war. Everything changed dramatically in the wake of Hitler, Stalin, and the bombs dropping on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which would eventually take us to the Cold War. Oppenheimer was never a communist. The film Oppenheimer is not about communism. It isn't even really a left versus right film. There isn't much politics involved at all. Some might react to the movie without seeing it, falsely believing it's communist propaganda, understandably, because of Hollywood's reputation of late. But that would be unfair and a misread of what Oppenheimer is about. In the 1930s, amid the Great Depression, Hooverville, and the New Deal, it was a great awakening of a kind. Those on the left who cared about social justice started organizations to help those left behind. FDR's New Deal, for instance, left behind black Americans. For podcast listeners, a picture from the History Channel, why the Communist Party defended the Scottsboro Boys. As a group of black teenagers awaited execution, the Communist Party and the NAACP bickered over their legal defense. In the book about Oppenheimer, he is so well-read, compassionate, and worldly that he understood it was an unequal society, just like Orwell or any decent person who lived back then would. That is what drew him and Orwell at one point to communism, and both would eventually abandon it once they saw where it led. Oppenheimer and Orwell were free thinkers. They valued freedom of the mind more than anything, just as I do. That is why Orwell wrote 1984, and it's why Oppenheimer's quote about science is such a good one. Quote, There is no place for dogma in science. The scientist is free, and must be free to ask any question, to doubt any assertion, to seek for any evidence, to correct any errors. J. Robert Oppenheimer. Does anyone think today's left still believes that? They do not. They do not believe in freedom of the mind at all. They believe in forced conformity and ideological compliance in art, science, education, and even relationships between people, language, comedy, and everything else they control, which is almost everything. Oppenheimer's first girlfriend, Jean Tatlock, was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. Most of Oppenheimer's friends were also communists. They continued to try to recruit him, but he always refused to join. He was a singular thinker and did not want to belong to any group or have any allegiances. He also, and I want to be clear here, built the atom bomb that ended the war. Anyone who wants to dump on Oppenheimer has to understand his place in history. And if you are applying his suspected ties to communism as being more important than building the atom bomb that ended the war, then you are no different from the screeching fanatics on the left. Whether you think he should have built the bomb is beside the point. He helped end World War II full stop. He was hailed as a hero for doing so. Our government wanted to build what President Ike warned against in his farewell address, the military-industrial complex. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Understandably proud of this preeminence, we yet realize that America's leadership and prestige depend 
not merely upon our unmatched material progress, riches, and military strength, but on how we use our power in the interest of world peace and human betterment. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt, both at home and abroad. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the stake. Only thus shall we remain, despite every provocation, on our charted course toward permanent peace and human betterment. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research. These and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy balance between the cost and hoped-for advantages, balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable, balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual, balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance and progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. 
Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. How to do this? Three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Oppenheimer did everything he could to prevent the arms race, which put him at odds with the government and the military. Oppenheimer was Jewish, which meant he was already an outsider and felt like one his entire life. But playing such an important part in history, with the caveat that they dropped the bomb on Japan and killed hundreds of thousands of people, of course, mattered to him. He believed he was building the bomb for Hitler, not Japan. The paranoia in our country was understandable. Communist spies were working in our government. There was a united effort to indoctrinate our citizens to their ideology. There was communist ideology injected into Hollywood screenplays. There was a communist movement here. Their fear was not unfounded. Most of those involved in the communist movement in the 1930s would ultimately abandon it once they saw Stalin's murder of millions and his extreme totalitarian ideology. Most people on the left did not know the extent of it, because then, like now, only useful information filtered through. I grew up thinking communism was good, and would only later understand how that ideology had manifested in the former Soviet Union, in China, and in North Korea. Has it ever worked out without becoming a dystopian nightmare? No. That's why Winston Churchill concluded this about democracy, quote, Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. Yet with the mass hysteria after the Rosenbergs were caught and executed, and the shooting in the Capitol, our government wanted to purge not just actual communists, but anyone who ever knew communists, or read a book that might be thought of as having communist leanings. This is why Arthur Miller wrote the play The Crucible, to bring back the Salem witch trials to illustrate another era, when mass hysteria caused us all to look at one another suspiciously, and terrible things followed in its wake. And why Rod Serling wrote such profound dissenting viewpoints in so many of the Twilight Zone episodes, like The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Pete Van Horn. Pete Van Horn. Well, he was just going over to the next block to see if the power was on. 
Charlie, you killed him. He's dead. I didn't know who he was. I most certainly didn't know who he was. Well, he came out of the darkness. How was I supposed to know who he was? Steve? You know why I shot him. How was I supposed to know he wasn't a monster or something? I was only trying to protect my home. And know it was somebody we knew. And no. Look! Charlie? Charlie, the lights just went on in your house. Why did the lights go on in your house? What about it, Charlie? How come you're the only one with lights now? Now we're seeing our country overtaken by something similar to communist ideology and the persecution of those trying to fight back. It's a hard pretzel to wrap one's mind around. It's easy if you separate the mass hysteria from the ideology. Now the hysteria is, and I'm writing a longer piece about this for next time in part three of America at the Hands of a Cult, rooted in the idea that it's communist ideology that must be preserved, and anyone trying to dismantle it is a racist, sexist, bigot, transphobe, etc. The two sides have completely reversed themselves. The left is now where the right was then. But if you stand on the side of freedom, you will always be on the right side, no matter your ideology. Freedom is what America is founded on, and it's freedom we must always reach for. What will frustrate me the most about the left's reaction to Oppenheimer is that they will still see themselves on the right side of history, because the Republicans were persecuting him and ultimately removed his security clearance. Maybe that means they still see themselves as the good guys fighting the good fight, but they would be wrong. Even those who are against cancel culture and understand fanaticism and dogma have captured all of our major institutions, from culture to education to science to government, will never be able to take one step further to understand that the source of the hysteria is the person that disrupted the utopia, Donald Trump. It's a little like saying, witchcraft is real, and there are real witches, just not those you accused of witchcraft. To understand the source of the hysteria, Donald Trump is a racist and a rapist, is to understand the purges and persecutions. This is why I no longer draw that line. Why I write so much about Trump and MAGA, even at the cost of my own reputation. And why I live my life publicly defying that direct order to divide myself from half the country. I do not buy into it, and that, I think, is our only way out. Until they can do that and humanize Trump and his supporters, they will never fully grasp the moment we're living through and will still kick the can down the road for years before it all comes home to roost. And it will. It always does. All one has to do is look at their behavior and our behavior since Trump was elected to understand what they're doing now. To Trump, to anyone who isn't fully on board with their woke-topia. It's still mass hysteria. It's still a mass delusion. It will still be regarded with the same disdain we now regard the witch hunts in the 1950s. At least in the 1950s, they had the excuse of World War II, Hitler, and Stalin. Now all we have is Trump, MAGA, and the Tea Party as their greatest threat. 
They believe it's the white male patriarchy and the white supremacists trying to remove the black and brown and LGBTQIA people from power. And this is because Obama did remake this country into a woke utopia. The film Barbie is a great example of just how accepted this ideology is, that regardless of the dramatic changes to it over the past few years, they can still point to the patriarchy as the ultimate evil. We've now become almost numb to watching our fellow Americans, millions of them, treated as enemies of the state, not to mention the unprecedented persecution of Trump. Jack Smith's indictment is the most recent example, but the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Russiagate, the two impeachments, and a propaganda media that refuses to report the truth, the casual dehumanization we see against them on social media, when the left holds all of the power, is a terrifying moment in history to be living through. It isn't hard to stand on the right side of history. You just have to recognize what fear and delusion can do to people when they don't have strong leaders like Eisenhower to guide them through the storm. I hope that clarifies my intent with the piece. And now a bit of housekeeping. I am separating free thinking with the Hollywood Woketopia podcast, but in order to get both of them, you have to subscribe to both of them on your podcast app. So if you navigate to sashastone.substack.com at the top, you'll see the link for the feed for Hollywood Woketopia that you can subscribe to it. Otherwise, those podcasts won't be hitting this particular feed. And I hope you continue to have a nice weekend and that you go see both of these films so that you can come back and talk to me about what you thought of them. And remember, to thine own self, be true. Long, long time ago I can still remember how that music used to make me smile And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance That maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day The music died So bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry them good old boys drinking whiskey and rye and singing this'll be the day that I die this'll be the day that I die did you write the book of love and do you have faith in God above if the Bible tells you so I saw you dancing in the gym You both kicked off your shoes Man, I dig those rhythm and blues I was a lonely teenage rockin' buck With a pink carnation and a pickup truck But I knew I was out of luck The day the music 
summer swelter The birds flew off with a fallout shelter Eight miles high and falling fast Landed foul on the grass The players tried for a forward pass With the jester on the sidelines in a cast Now the halftime air was sweet perfume While the sergeants played a marching tune We all got up to dance store where I'd heard the music years before but the man there said the music wouldn't play and in the streets the children screamed the lovers cried and the poets dreamed but not a word was spoken the church bells all were broken and the three men I admire most Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost Why they caught the last train For the coast the day The music died And they were singing Bye, 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 bye. 